Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the official Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Vina Tripathi, the lead online editor for Volume 103 of the Minnesota Law Review. Our guest today is Professor Rose Cuisson Villasur, the co-author of Sanctuary Networks, which is published in Issue 3 of Volume 103, available online now. Professor Cuisson Villasur is a professor of law at Rutgers Law School. She is an expert in immigration, citizenship, property law, race, and the law. She is a nationally regarded scholar with an active record in social justice issues and is the founder of the Rutgers Center for Immigration Law, Policy, and Justice. Previously, Professor Rose Cuisson Filiasor was a professor of law and a Martin Luther King Jr. Hall research scholar at the University of California at Davis School of Law. Welcome, Professor Cuisson Filiasor. Thank you, Vina, for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today on Experto Crede. Um, so the focus of our conversation today will be on your article, Sanctuary Networks. In it, you and your co-author, Professor Pratipan Gulasekaram, identify, analyze, and coin the term sanctuary networks to refer to an emerging category of sanctuary. So our first question has to be, what are sanctuary networks and why are they important to pay attention to? Thank you. So sanctuary networks the way that we discussed it, uh, refers to uh, the network of groups, individuals, nonprofit organizations, cities, maybe perhaps states, that all work together, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, to provide a larger safe haven for immigrants within the particular jurisdiction or a particular domain. We decided to call, to, to think, we've been thinking about sanctuary networks um, right after the election, uh, there was a lot of conversation about sanctuary cities, but from our perspective, based on the work that we were seeing on the ground um, by activists and other um, immigrants' rights, social justice uh, workers, sanctuary cities was such a narrow way of thinking about the kind of support that was being given to immigrants and their families. We saw churches, schools, restaurants, um, employers who were working alongside with sanctuary cities to create a safe haven for immigrants. And so from our perspective, it made more sense to think about the larger network of people who were all working together, collaborating together, again, sometimes, or in the most cases, informally, but they do to collectively, they were able to provi provide a larger um, assistance for immigrants and their families. Fantastic. And, you know, one of the, the next things you jump into when you really uh, start the piece is you redefine the term sanctuary or you maybe narrow the discussion of what sanctuary means for the purpose of this article. So why did you choose to uh, limit the term or maybe uh, refocus the way that we think about sanctuary? Sure. First, it's important to remember that there is no legal definition of sanctuary. And so as a result of that, there are a lot of, um, there's, it's a contestation about what sanctuary descriptively means or what it should mean. For our purposes in this piece, we decided to focus primarily on resistance by public and private actors to immigration law enforcement. And so by defining sanctuary in that way, we wanted to focus specifically on the types of legal actions that these different entities can undertake in providing support for immigrants and their families. So it is a much more narrow uh, definition of sanctuary. Um, it doesn't go into the forms of resistance, perhaps, um, uh, civil disobedience uh, that might be more better 
um, equated with the, the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, our goal in this paper is to highlight the various types of legal actions grounded on uh, various laws and policies that are available to actors who wanted to provide sanctuary. Fantastic. And, and you mentioned this briefly already, but one of the actors that you identify is the church. Um, and uh, I found this section of your paper fascinating because the church really, um, and, and you can talk a little bit more about this, uses different legal systems and positions to sort of frame the way that the church itself approaches sanctuary. So can you talk a little bit about uh, your decision to focus on the church uh, as its own sort of entity outside of cities and uh, new sanctuary systems? Yes, and I'm glad that you asked that because the, the sanctuary movement within the immigration justice context began with churches in the 1980s. So to us, focusing on what churches have done and what they continue to do should be the starting place of a conversation about sanctuary uh, networks at large. And so churches have had, since the 1980s, have been providing physical sanctuary to undocumented immigrants who are trying to uh, who seek, who have sought to stay in the United States to avoid uh, removal or separation, uh, removal from the United States and separation from their families who are here and many of them might be U.S. citizens and uh, their family members, that is. And so churches provide physical sanctuary to these immigrants um, and in large part to promote the, the integrity of the family. In the 1980s, when churches began providing physical sanctuary, uh, they were doing so to, pro uh, to protect Central Americans who, whose refugee and asylum applications were being routinely denied by then Immigration and Naturalization Services, INS. And so in order to protect these immigrants whom they believe should have been entitled to asylum status or refugee status, churches, um, provided physical sanctuary for them, gave them food, gave them water, uh, allowed them to be part of their community in order to keep them here as a way to tell the federal government what you are doing is morally wrong. Churches were then prosecuted as a result of their work. So church, uh, church pa pastors and religious workers were then subject to criminal prosecution for uh, what the federal government believed was the harboring of undocumented immigrants. Um, a number of those ministers and pastors and religious workers were convicted of providing such sanctuary, and um, and, and that, but that did not deter the ability of churches uh, to continue providing physical sanctuary to um, immigrants. And in fact, after the election, we saw an upsurge of churches who were who have decided to provide sanctuary. In our piece, we focus on a number of different rights that churches have. Uh, within the Constitution. So one of those is the right um, that they have, uh, church, churches as property owners um, have under the Fourth Amendment, that they can choose to, uh, to refuse any um, immigration law officers from coming to their churches that are uh, the private part, a private sanctuary area of the churches uh, to, ex uh, to exclude ICE agents if they don't have a judicially signed warrant. That, of course, is a right that belongs to every private property owner. But in addition to that constitutional right, there are also, um, under the Fourth Amendment, there are also First Amendment rights as well as statutory rights um, that churches may invoke and have invoked um, as a way to further 
uh, to, to be able to exercise their religious freedom, religious liberty rights in providing sanctuary for these um, for these immigrants. And so churches are uh, in a unique church. And I don't just mean to focus primarily on churches. I mean here by places of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly there have been a number of different uh, faith-based organizations that have chosen to participate in the greater sanctuary movement and uh, they've been able to invoke their rights under the constitution as well as statutes to continue to be able to do this work that they want to do. I mean, first off, that is, I I didn't even realize that this area of of law existed with churches before I read, um, before I read your piece. So, you know, when when you did start this discussion with churches, it it sort of, uh, I think, fell into a pattern of there are so many places now that people are going that are part of their daily lives that are providing this sanctuary. So the next place that you talk about um, are schools and uh, workplaces. So, uh, First of all, can you tell us a little bit about why you think that churches, schools, workplaces, places that people are um, going to in their day-to-day lives are the ones providing these sanctuary services rather than uh, more institutionalized, uh, I would say, approaches? It makes sense to me that uh, churches and schools and employers are the ones providing uh, physical sanctuary or providing some sort of protection for them by uh, choosing to exclude ICE unless ICE agents, law enforcement officers have a warrant that's signed by a judge. And the reason why I think they do so is because they, they're, uh, these are sites where immigrants and their families interact on a regular basis. Churches um, are places of worship where immigrants and immigrants and their families go. Schools are children who are um, either child, uh, U.S. citizens whose parents are undocumented or perhaps the children themselves are um, are undocumented. And of course, employers, um, they hire, uh, they, they've hired immigrant workers, some of whom are undocumented or employer uh, employees rather, who may um, have undocumented families. So all of these different places, churches, schools, and um, places of work, these are places, these are sites where immigrants and families go or have um, um, go on a regular basis. And as a result, um, it makes sense that these entities would provide sanctuary, not only for the benefit of the people with whom they interact, but also for their own um, specific benefits. Uh, When a family, uh, when an immigrant is removed from a community, uh, they're Either their, the children suffer, so then the children who go to school, if they lose their parents uh, through the uh, b- through deportation um, policies, then that affects the children's ability to learn. When um, a worker has been um, picked up and detained and then removed, then of course work suffers, right? The kind of um, product or uh, the kind of work that that particular company is involved in suffers. And then there is, of course, we can exa- understand that as well from the church's perspective. When their congregants, their members are picked up or ha- those members have family members who are detained and removed, that also affects uh, the, the church, the community. And so there's a, a, each of these places um, are part of a larger community in which immigrants and their families are are involved in. And so it makes a lot of sense um, that these entities will provide sanctuary to them. 
Definitely. And to to move forward with a, another institution that you mentioned, you talk a lot about um, universities and how they're sort of uniquely situated to contribute uh, to the resistance in this way. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the process of identifying maybe some of the rights that universities had in your research and, and mm-hmm. why you think universities are uh, uniquely slated to provide a sanctuary? Thank you. So right after the election, there were a number, uh, the twenty, the November 2016 16 election, there were a number of schools that declared themselves a sanctuary campus or a welcoming campus. Um, and the primary reason for these universities was the protection of, the, uh, of their students, the students who are enrolled in these campuses, and the concern that administrators have that these uh, students uh, may be targeted for removal. And so universities are, uh, many universities are pu- public institutions where everyone is welcomed. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a place um, that cannot um, exclude everybody, but there are some measures that universities, both public and private, have been able to undertake in order to provide that kind of pro- uh, protection for their um, immigrant students. So for example, um, some uh, some sanctuary campuses or welcoming campuses have said that ICE will not be welcomed there on their campuses unless they also have a judicially signed warrant. They also said that they will not report any kind of information to um, law enforcement officers unless, once again, that there is a judicially signed warrant. And those are rights that they have under what's called FERPA. Um, uh, which is a statute that protects the privacy rights of students as well as other uh, as well as employees who are affiliated with a university. So it's a legal action that universities have been able to to tap into in order to ensure the protection of their immigrant students. Fantastic. And and when we also talk about universities, I can't help but uh, think about your discussion of the role of social media in this. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how uh, social media plays into the resistance and how this uh, Supreme Court opinion in Packingham can help or hinder the development of these sanctuary networks? So uh, technology has certainly changed the legal landscape and the social landscape. Um, that in, in which immigration law enforcement um, has been operating, uh, people have been able to to tweet, to take pictures, take videos, and post them to Facebook, to um, Instagram, and share with a wider audience. Um, all of these different uh, forms of um, social networks have enabled individuals, uh, U.S. citizens, to participate in this larger resistance movement. Uh, within the sanctuary networks. Um, In Packingham, the court essentially struck down a North Carolina statute, right, that banned convicted sex offenders from using social networks. So um, in so doing, then it allowed for more people to be able to participate in, um, in sharing of information. And so as a result, then there has been this extension of rights that have been available to everybody, even for people who were previously precluded from participating in this larger social network. And, and so, in many ways, um, some interactions between ICE agents and immigrants, I wouldn't say that they've been thwarted, but certainly there has been this larger criticism of agency actions because people surrounding uh, uh, ICE agents and immigrants 
from an immigration raid or if there's someone has been picked up, those interactions have been immediately broadcast right, to a large audience. And so one can see through how many views on, a, on YouTube or let's say on Facebook or um, Instagram, then one can easily see the kind of act actions um, that have taken place and people have been able to react and um, and gather together and have and demanded for a call, a, a call to action or demanded for better treatment of immigrants. And I think you refer to this in your paper as uh, the increased uh, democratization of uh, the movement. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what that means to you and, and why you chose to use those words uh, to refer to the broadening of sanctuary networks or the creation of sanctuary networks, I should say? Yes. And in part, uh, the, the way that we framed it in the paper was a response to uh, the, the legal conversation that seemed to have dominated the concept of sanctuary. Um, sanctuary cities seem to have uh, received the most scholarly and political attention. Um, and by doing it, that the kind of dis the discussions that centered on sanctuary cities have focused primarily on the Tenth Amendment and federalism principles. Uh, we saw what, what was happening on the ground uh, was broader and there needed to be a, a, a much more in-depth conversations about these other forms of sanctuary that were happening at, in restaurants, in schools, in, um, in churches, in, in um, universities. So in the larger setting, so I, the piece also talked about uh, rapid re rap rapid response network. So the community would gather and they would say, okay, so this will be our safe space. It's a safety zone. And um, if we see ICE coming here, then we're all going to respond quickly. We're going to be witnesses to these, uh, to the particular um, action between ICE and this and, and our neighbor. And so there are a lot, there was a lot more going on then, uh, immediately after the election and then the last uh, couple of years that um, showed the people who were stakeholders were involved in this larger project of providing sanctuary, even with even though it's outside of this the typical sanctuary city um, uh, policy, which really focused uh, uh, emphasized the non cooperation by local governments with federal immigration enforcement. Right, as in local police, local law enforcement have said, we're not going to do the job of ICE because our job is to protect our community and federal immigration law should be enforced by federal agents. And so sanctuary networks show that uh, there has been opportunities for individual actors to participate. So then it lends uh, the network analysis highlighted the democratization of immigration resistance and immigration just the immigration justice movement. And so with this new term that you've coined with all, I, I think what you've done in this piece, at least from the law student perspective, is you've clearly laid out this new area of sanctuary that's starting. Um, and I, I wonder, what, what do you hope that the impact of this new term, this new idea, this new way of thinking will be? We hope that first, in terms of describing what was happening, that we were able to fill a gap in the scholarly and political conversations about um, the, what these different actors within the sanctuary networks are doing in, with respect to um, immigration law enforcement. Um, in the paper, we highlighted the, 
the ability of stakeholders to be able to influence how um, how immigration enforcement will actually will operate in practice. So because of the sanctuary networks movement uh, that, that we've identified, then um, states, local governments, as well as the federal government have to contend uh, w with this larger network and be able to see from a policy perspective how might immigration enforcement operate now or how might resistance to immigration enforcement, how that would work in light of all the other actors who are involved. So at the very least, we, uh, we believe um, that this, uh, the, the networks analysis uh, might offer some ideas for other people to engage, perhaps in a much more formal collaborative way, be able to combine some of their individual, uh, the rights that um, employers have, that churches have, and individuals and, and communities have in order to come up with some, uh, a broader system. Um, of a much more a, a more collaborative, perhaps formal system of assisting immigrants and their families within the boundaries of law. It also, uh, I think, form the sanctuary networks um, by focusing on this collaboration. Uh, there could be more um, exploration of some of the limits of that because each of these um, actors on their own, there are limits to their ability to provide sanctuary but then when you examine them collectively on the whole then one can probably see the power of their ability to shape how immigration enforcement can um, how it should it would operate so my my next question I think will will tie into the conversation we had a little bit before we got on the air but but what are you working on now and um, is there anything else with sanctuary networks that we should be keeping our eyes out for one of the ideas behind Sanctuary Network is to go, um, is to expand the conversation about sanctuary beyond sanctuary cities, uh, beyond federalism principles. And one of the projects that my co-author, Professor Glossakaram, and I finished with another professor, Professor Rick Sue, um, at, um, at SUNY Buffalo, is that it's a concept of anti-sanctuary. And so in that project, uh, we talked about the ways in which some states have passed laws, what we called anti-sanctuary laws, laws, in order to stop sanctuary cities um, or welcoming cities from, from passing um, their, their ordinances or policies that are designed to create a much more welcoming um, community for immigrants and their families. From that perspective, it becomes a state versus local government perspective, and the questions then are different. Uh, the questions from the anti-state, anti-sanctuary uh, perspective, that the legal arguments would center on localism. How much power do local governments have in, um, in protecting immigrants, and how much power do states have in trying to quash uh, these sanctuary cities? And so in that paper, uh, which is it's, fourth, it's a companion piece to the Sanctuary Networks piece in the Minnesota Law Review, that anti-sanctuary is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review, we identified some legal arguments that local governments can uh, rely upon in order to, to fight back against state anti-sanctuary laws. Fantastic. We'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that. And um, 
So a last couple of questions here on our end. Uh, for the listeners out there who want to support the development of these sanctuary networks, who want to get involved, uh, maybe from the law student perspective or just, you know, the average everyday person, what, uh, what can they do? I think so. Specifically for law students, you're studying uh, a number, a, a lot of legal doctrines, constitutional rights. One of the things that my students and I have done, um, he, both here at Rutgers Law School and then in my prior institutions um, at UC Davis and at Columbia Law School, is to conduct Know Your Rights presentations. Um, in the classroom, you've learned the rights that you have under the Fourth Amendment, under the Fourteenth Amendment, a range of different constitutional rights that apply to all persons, regardless of immigration status. Not a lot of people know that, though. Um, not a lot of immigrants in particular know that. And so law students are in a really good position to put together a Know Your Rights presentation to communities, perhaps communities that are uh, near the law school, immigrant communities that um, are easy to get to and um, would benefit so much from these experiences. Um, I've done Know Your Rights presentations with students in, uh, we've gone to church, we've gone to, to schools, and um, so collaborated with them to provide this kind of information that we thought would be helpful for immigrants. For uh, the general public, it's important to know what those rights are. Um, <laughs> so attend those meetings or also work with law students, work with lawyers to provide Know Your Rights presentations because these rights apply to all. And so for uh, listeners who are US citizens, uh, you can be an important ally in this larger sanctuary network, some movement uh, to take videos, to be witnesses to when there are interactions between ICE agents and, and immigrants and their families so that you can support, you can provide uh, information to the larger, uh, larger audience through perhaps the use of social media. And so not only to inform, but to lend your support, moral support to immigrants who are being separated under a much more stringent in immigration enforce law enforcement scheme. Definitely. And I think that those are, for all the law students out there listening, I think those Know Your Rights presentations are something that you can access even at your own uh, law school, even whether or not you have a uh, immigration clinical program. Uh, Professor uh, Quisonville Sor, is there a way that uh, if law students can get in contact with you if they have questions on how to put these presentations together? Oh, of course. Uh, you can contact me at my email um, at Rutgers Law School. So that's rose.villazor at law.rutgers.edu. I would be happy to share my materials. We've done these Know Your Rights presentations in English and Spanish. Um, and so there's no, I, 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 there's uh, this presentation can be expanded to other languages as well, depending on which immigrant communities are, um, might need them near your schools. Fantastic. And our last question of the day is our signature, uh, our signature last question. So it is the TLDR takeaway, the too long didn't read takeaway. So <laughs> if you were to summarize your piece or the one takeaway that um, that a student, a law professor, a, uh, a practitioner, or just a regular layperson that's interested in this type of work, uh, one takeaway for them, what would that be? The piece highlighted the power of networks, the power of people working together, different actors, churches, individuals, employers, communities. There is power when people work together to collaborate and form 
a larger and can form a larger protection for immigrants and their families. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, Professor Quison Villasor, for your time today. It was fantastic speaking with you. Uh, we're so passionate about the work that you're doing over here at Minnesota Law Review. I know I was on the articles committee that uh, helped select this piece for publication, and we were we were very, very excited uh, that, that we were able to work with you. So thank you so much for your time and your great work. Um, to the listeners, if you have comments or questions, feel free to tweet us at Minnesota Law Review, or you can message me directly at vnet underscore Tripathi. And we'll see you next time on Experto Crede. Thank you again, Professor Quison Villasor. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to work with the Minnesota Law Review. Thanks. <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by the Minnesota Law Review. You can find us on the web at minnesotalawreview.org. Follow us on Twitter at Minnesota Law Rev. To subscribe to our podcast, please visit soundcloud.com slash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast provider. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.